Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And you know, Julie, uh, I was recently, uh, my wife and I were in Costa Rica uh, a few months back. And you know, when you're on vacation, you always run into people and you sort of, you end up sort of hanging out with these people a little bit for the... The people that you meet. Yeah. 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 And uh, we happened to run into this uh, couple where um, the, uh, the the husband was a retired uh, educator. So, uh, you know, I was talking to him a little bit about education because, I'm, I mean, since I'm in the business of writing about science and podcasting about science. And he Edutainment. Was, yeah, yeah, and he was in the the, uh, the business of teaching kids about and trying to get kids excited about science. We, uh, we were able to... Uh, to go back and forth a little bit. And at one point he said something really fascinating, uh, to me. He was, he was like, ah, but then, then Walkmans came ar- around and then nobody wanted to go into space anymore. <laughs> and, um, and I got to thinking about that because at first I was like, what? This is, what does, what does that even mean? That this that, must have been a late night conversation. Uh, no, I think it was like, well, I, we were probably, no, we couldn't have been very jet lagged because it's just Costa Rica, but, um, uh, maybe mid morning, but okay. still, we were all disoriented by being in a new place. You had sloth disorientation. Well, sloth anticipation distort oh, okay. disorientation because right. okay. we were, you know, you first thing you want to do is like take me to those sloths. Yeah, I just want to set the scene. Yeah, here. yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I got I got to thinking about that, and I'm like, well, how does how does one affect the other? Like, why why would uh, suddenly Walkmans become popular in the '80s, and then everyone's like, space to heck with that. I got my tunes that it. It didn't make a lot of sense to me but mm-hmm. until I started researching it more. And I found out that there is this thing uh, called the Walkman effect. Yes, I've heard of this. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. It um, The term first uh, emerged in the writings of Japan's uh, Shuhei Hosokawa yes. around 1984. And this was stirred in part uh, by the work of French writer Philippe uh, Solaires. And uh, anyway, so, uh, Sollers did this real cool bit where uh, he was interviewing young people about how the use of headphones altered their perceptions of others about humanity's future mm-hmm. and what outside reality reality was like. Um, and uh, and the, this is the reply uh, as published in the 1984 Journal of Popular Music. Well, actually, I don't know. Is your French accent better than mine? No. Okay. I can guarantee you it'll, it'll become like Scottish. And, okay. And well, well, I will, I will attempt to do this enough because it's, it's, okay. it's a very French sounding answer. So it says, and so in outrageous French, your question is out of date. All of these problems of communication and incommunability belong to the sixties and the seventies. The eighties are not the same at all. These are the years. Now I'm kind of becoming I, I German know. in it. It always becomes Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. These are the years of, um, of autonomy, of an inter, Section of singularities in the construction of discourses. Soon you will have every kind of film and on video at home, every kind of classical music on only one tape. This is what gives me pleasure. Well, I think it all, it's, <laughs> it's also that. a very German idea, which is probably why my accent became German halfway through, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the pleasure part, that's very French. Uh, but this is what, around 80, 81. Mm-hmm. And obviously all of this has come to fruition now, right? We, we have everything at our fingertips. Um, right. so it sort of becomes like this, the Walkman effect is, becomes this question about whether or not we are now moving through life so seamlessly that, um, and then we're engaging in different ways and very much in virtual ways, right? And having virtual relationships. The question is that when we're um, faced with real obstacles outside of this bubble we've, we cre- we've created, 
you know, are we, have we just become complacent rubes? This is yeah. one of the issues that has come up that we'll get into later, but yeah, because so many of us, uh, especially with the, with the smartphones, you know, it's like, like I get on the train in the morning and I have my headphones in, I'll have some music playing and, uh, I'm, I'm one of the holdouts. So I still actually pull out a physical book and read it. But for most people, it seems, or most of the, the people who are really into these devices are, you know, it's more and more reading on your phone or reading right. on your, your iPad or your, your Kindle or, or whatever you happen to have. Um, or you're, or you're playing a game, or you're checking your email or you're doing a uh, Scrabble or something. Uh, and to what extent are you no longer in the space that you occupy? Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because the Walkman effect, this, this concern, right? That mm-hmm. we are, uh, trapping ourselves in this bubble came up in the eighties and then it came up again with the advent of the iPod, right? Right. And there's actually a New York Times article about pod people. And this is a quote from it. Um, the fear that personal stereos could lead to antisocial behavior is an old one. The late Akia Morita, a founder of Sony and the company's chief executive at the Walkman's introduction was said to have been so afraid of the device's capacity for creating solips, solipsistic drones, a bunch of sleepwalkers, that he insisted early on that the Walkman have two headphone jacks and a microphone so listeners could communicate with each other. There is little evidence that the Walkman wrecked modern society, so some technologists say that there is little reason to fear the iPod. Right, and I don't think there's any reason to, to fear the iPod. And, no, no. And and certainly you can, uh, I was reading some uh, some more sort of criticism of this, uh, this line of thinking, and uh, it was uh, pointed out that, uh, you know, talk about like, you know, your device is becoming distracting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like because in, indeed, I mean, just from personal experience, uh, the time or two that I've had headphone problems or I've run out of batteries and I've had to go um, without on MARTA mm-hmm. uh, on the, the public transportation, tr- public transportation system here in Atlanta. I, uh, I find that I am a little more present in the space. I, I'm, yeah. I'm aware that, hey, there are actual people around me and they're not just uh, grumpy things. But actual grumpy people. Well, see, I was saying that's the depressing part. And that's yeah. why for me, when, when I use public transport, uh, transportation or if I'm in a situation where I just kind of want to block everything out, it's it can make life a lot more fuller seeming. Right. Yeah. And part of this is because we're listening to music and we already know that music has really very uh, positive effects on our mood. So, but the problem is this, is that when you talk about the Walkman effect or you talk about the iPod, a lot of the, the initial reaction to it and the, the type of research that was tried with it was really focusing on music. And we, and as you've mentioned, mm-hmm. it's now become, um, a device for everything in your life. Yeah. Right. So it's very hard to sort of gauge what the, what the result is now, how it's really affecting us. Yeah. Because like I, I listen to music. A, for a large portion of the day on, on my commute. And then most of the time when I'm at work, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I have some sort of music going. I can uh, attest to that. Like yeah. you, you have your like virtual office walls up when you've got your, your headphones on. And it's, it's weird because you always approach from one side of the desk and, uh, Allison, my editor always approaches from the other side. So it, and, but then occasionally other random people will approach from different sides and I have no idea who's, who it's going to be. Oh yeah. You know? You're completely yeah. gone. Yeah. Sometimes I just sit there and talk to you or I just like, I start doing this drumming beat <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, when is he going to notice? But always when I do prints, when, when this is, you know, doves cry, uh-huh. when I do that little knock, you always respond. Oh wow. Interesting. I just brought in Prince's greatest hits on a, a stick today to listen to. I knew so, there was something yeah. there. Yeah. Well, um, you know, but, but in listening to all this music all day, it does paint the world that you're experiencing. It's, it's not, 
it's not as much like you're just, you know, casting it aside, but you're experiencing it in a, in a different light. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a psychologist by the name of Rainier Schoenhammer, and uh, he uh, wrote a 1989 article called The Walkman in the Primary World of the Senses. And uh, I really like the way he described uh, his own experiences of, uh, yeah. of trying to walk around with music playing in his ear, which apparently he had not really done before. Um, so uh, so he had a fresh you know, response to it. He says, the music literally colors the visual world. Furthermore, the outside world profoundly alters its character. It is perceived like a film. The subject speaks of his feeling of being outside reality, while at the same time being aware of living in this reality. When he adds that he gains a calmer attitude to time and space, he makes us understand the significance of his experience of simultaneous absence and presence. Absence does not mean that the world is no longer worth attention. On the contrary, the subject's disengagement sets him free to enjoy the world attentively as a colorful and rich spectacle. His being in the world shifts from that of the participant to that of the spectator. Well, and I think that's really important right there, yeah. because I think that and just to play devil's advocate, I think that's where people will take issue with it and saying, OK, no longer are you engaging um, in the world. You are now looking at it from a distance. Right. And as a result, you know, since since we are a society that's based on communication and community, you're taking yourself out of that equation. Um and there's a New York Times article called Digital Devices Deprive Brain of Downtown and they're downtime and they're oh, actually yes. talking about you know some of this. Again, this is the this is sort of the con part of the argument, right? About why you should be so fully engaged in a, a device. Oh well also this is the argument that, that you just need to stop bombarding your brain sometimes. Exactly. And let everything settle, let everything process. Right. And they say, okay, almost certainly downtime uh, lets the brain go over experiences it's had, solidify them, and turn them into permanent long-term memories, says Lauren Frank, assistant professor in the Department of Physiology, um, where uh, where he specializes in learning and memory. He said he believed that when the brain was constantly stimulated, you prevent this learning process. And as the University of Michigan, a study um, – or rather, a study at the University of Michigan found that people learned significantly better after a walk in nature than after a walk in a dense urban environment, suggesting that processing a barrage of information leaves people fatigued. Hmm. So I think that's an interesting concept. But I mean, my counter argument would be, can you not create your own forest, you know, auditory forest for yourself when with you, music, with yeah. music, right? Um, so again, that's why I'm saying that I think that this is incomplete. Like the, the studies on this obviously haven't really been conducted in a way that we can get a, a good bird, bird's eye view of what has been happening over the last 30 years. Plus, I don't, th- I, I think that the idea of people overstimulating their brain or stimulating their brain constantly, that is not something that has just emerged with uh, the advent of electronic devices. Right. I mean, clearly for ages, you've had people who were, you know, readaholics who just always had a book on them and, whip it out at a moment's notice to to read and just are constantly studying or constantly working or uh, look you know look at any of these just amazing minds uh, th- from throughout history that we've discussed in the podcast like Leonardo da Vinci you know the the the, the, the most uh, you know famous example like it's 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 hard to imagine that guy just sitting around and just doing nothing and kicking back he was probably right. sketching or or you know coming up with these ideas and i i wonder if if he was really according to this article if he was really giving those ideas the proper time to settle down of course the internet and porn uh, did not exist at that time so <laughs> i i mean i'm just going to play again yeah. devil's advocate because though he i think leonardo da vinci invented early forms of both 
Of course he yeah, did. Yeah. Of course. Or he at least sketched out. The yeah. I was about to say he, he certainly yeah. has a blueprint of it somewhere, I'm sure. But, um, but the, I mean, that, that would be the argument is that our, our attention is pulled in so many different directions that it's very difficult for us to sometimes just sit down and concentrate on one thing. And so mm-hmm. as a result, you know, we're just, we're scattered all over the place. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Actually, Wired Magazine has a good counterpoint to all of this as well, and we'll check that out in a second here right after our break. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So what Wired says is like, just just as you had, had sort of mentioned before, is that the, the idea of new techno technology overloading us is um, as old as technology. Um, technology isn't actually damaging the brain. We, we have always been bifurcated in terms of what we're trying to do. Right. So let's say that you were driving a, a horse and buggy in the old, olden days. I mean, you're still having to concentrate on the road. You're probably still having a conversation. You're still, your brain is still going to operate in the ways that it wants to. We are, it says, the Wired magazine says, we are born to multitask. Right. So in a way we, you know, we can't help but even process like this. Yeah. And like any new, any new technology is going to bring people saying, well, how, like, um, I, I didn't think to even, even research this, but I wonder if when, uh, when they first started putting radios in cars, like what, how, what the response there was, if people were like, oh my goodness, you're going to destroy everything. Like people are going to be listening to the radio. They're going to drive off the road. Oh, I'm sure. I guarantee yeah. somebody was making that argument. Yeah, absolutely. But of course we know that's not the case, right? We can still listen to a conversation. You can still hear music and you yeah. can still concentrate on the road. Though I do find if I'm, if I'm driving and I'm conversing, I'll, I'll accidentally slow down to about 35 miles per hour. Regardless of speed limit. Really? Man, my husband does that too. It drives me nuts. And I'll be yeah. like, and sometimes I'll just quit talking so much to see if he'll speed up, which <laughs> happens. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, and I will say too that when I'm listening to music, there are certain types of music that I can't listen to when I'm writing. So yeah, yeah I mean, I can't like listen what? to lyrical, I mean, oh, lyrical I, music. Yeah. Yeah. I need to, it just has to be, you know, Yo Yo Ma or something really repetitive helps when I'm trying to, to really, uh, cogitate in the old brain. Yeah, I find that I can I can generally listen to uh, to lyrical music, but if it's something really brain intensive, uh, where I really need to to batten down the hatches, I'll tend to go with something without human voices in it. Yeah, um, and then also I'll find that I'll go with different things that fit the theme. Like if I'm writing a a piece, uh, you know, for work that deals with a more serious, c- cerebral or cosmic kind of a thing, then mm-hmm. then I'll, I'll definitely go for something that fits that vibe. But if it's more fun, I might put on a little, you know, something a little sillier or upbeat and, you know, dancey. So. Were you, uh, when you wrote that inter- interpretive dance article, were you listening to Philip Glass? Uh, well, when I was writing interpretive dance, uh, I was listening to, um, uh, Shaker's music from the 1800s. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. I was just completely out. I, I get, I had guessed it was Philip Glass just because yeah. of the rolling on the floor. I do have some Philip Glass though. I do, I do put, put all Philip yeah, on sometimes. Yeah, I can dig me some Philip. But what I think about, what I think is interesting about all of this is that there's still this idea that there's something wrong with us opting out of, 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 uh, I guess you would say communication. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're in a setting with people you know and you whip out a cell phone or you, you know, or you actually put in headphones or something. Yeah, that's rude. Yeah. That's, uh, and, and likewise, like I was always raised that, uh, if you're wearing sunglasses, you take them off while you're talking to somebody. Right. Because if you're wearing sunglasses, you can't make eye contact with that person. Well, and I think that the problem is some people perceive it as, um, 
is if they see someone who's got their headphones on, that person seems unavailable, right? Right. And but that person is able to auditize look. This is this is a term that they're auditized looking at everybody else. In other words, they they have the ability to to engage, but on on their own terms. So the social contract is that you know you you have ears, right? Yeah. And um, you're you're taking in language, and we're all sort of in this together via language, right? Right. And if you seal that off, then you're saying, I'm no longer part of the community. And yet I can sit back here and I can observe all of you, but I, you know, I take myself out of the equation. Um, and I think that's the problem that some people perceive this as, is that people are sort of saying, you know, forget it. I'm, I'm dropping out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. When I first started taking public transportation, um, uh, my friend Dave told me, it's like, all right, here's what you need to do. So you don't get hassled by people. Uh, br- bring a book, have <laughs> right. your headphones in, wear sunglasses, uh, and then, you know, nobody will even see you. And, uh, so for a while I did that, even with the, the sunglasses. Um, but I did find that it works on normal people, but not crazy people. Well, no, of course the not. The crazy, like crazy people on, on, uh, on the train that want to come up and talk to you. Uh, uh, sometimes they're, they're panhandling, but sometimes they just want to talk to you. Uh, they'll just come up and just continue to talk and talk. And, and then finally you sort of like feel something, you know, in, uh, over to your side and you'll, you'll look over and who knows how long they've been standing there because they're, they're immune to it. But yeah, for everybody else, it's that put it wearing the headphones, wearing the, the, uh, the, the sunglasses sends the message. I'm not here to listen to you. I'm not here to see you. My, uh, sensory, uh, uh, organs are for the most part cut off from you. Yeah. And this, this article that you sent, uh, me, which is great, uh, the Walkman in the primary world was actually talking about this again, the social contract. It's, uh, there's a, a part from it that says the acoustical pursues us. We are at its mercy, unable to get away. Once uttered, a word is there entering and owning us. And I think that that's the important part of this is that you don't necessarily have the ability to own someone's attention once they've decided to opt out. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about this, too. There is a, a French philosopher by the name of Louis Althusser, and he talks about how it's, it's a sort of interesting concept about how we are all tied to something called the ide- ideological state apparatus. And, of course, he's Marxism, right? So when we talk about state, he's talking more about governments or um, communities even. And what he's saying is that through language and communication, we learn what our roles are, who we are, and, and how we should behave and that we're a product of language. I mean, our existence is completely tied to language, right? Yeah, yeah. language is the operating system for the brain. I mean, it's right. it's it's core to who we are and, right. and how we perceive the universe. Right. And even if, if you are uh, deaf or if you are blind, you are still communicating in some manner, right? right. Um, he gives the example of walking down the street and someone hailing you and saying, hey, you. Uh, and we automatically respond as a result. And he says this is because we are always ready always already we were sort of born as as understanding that we were a subject and um and that if someone says hey you we can't help but misidentify perhaps ourselves as as that subject and that that he says represents the imaginary relationship of individuals of existence or to existence so that's what i thought was fascinating about this of course he has a problem with that because what is he saying is that we're we're in a sort of false um cage of ourselves mm-hmm. through this this apparatus of always being a subject and always being identified as you through language. And, and you know, he's a Marxist, so he's basically saying, hey, you're just a cog in the wheel and you're just a subject and a product. 
But um, but I did think that that was sort of interesting is the crux of this problem that when people point to it and they say, ah, but you're creating this portable bubble of yourself, of your own existence. It's not much different than already ascribing meaning to our existence when we take off our headphones. We're always constructing some sort of idea of ourselves. Right. 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 So um, to me, it's a bit of like a free will thing. Like, OK, of course, you want to communicate with other people. You want to be engaged with each other. You want to have eye contact because that's really, uh, you know, that's what being alive means, right? Just having relationships and having communication and language. But there's nothing wrong, I think, with creating that that sort of personal bubble for yourself as long as you step out of it. Yeah. Like I've, I've noticed before, like, uh, like occasionally I'll be on the train and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put on some sort of, uh, sad music and I'll look around and notice, notice everybody and I'll be like, man, everybody looks so sad on this train. Yeah. And uh, so I'm, I wonder, is it a situation where the music is painting my interpretation of the world or is it helping me actually to take note? I'm not listening to some sort of upbeat thing or something that's more cerebral. I'm, I'm listening to something that's, that's a little, uh, depressing and i'm actually noticing hey there are some people dealing with some unhappy situations and i'm normally yeah. blind to it well see that's that's what's really interesting about music right i mean if if uh in this particular instance not necessarily reading a book reading a book you're probably going to be completely disengaged but music might be able to enhance your connection with humanity mm-hmm. and this is from molly edmonds articles are linked between music and happiness and she actually says that hearing piece of music um, that is in a minor key and is slower will actually result in, in a more feelings of sadness, right? Because mm-hmm. it can cause a slowing of the pulse and a rise in blood pressure. And of course, conversely, you know, fast tempos with a major key can make you breathe faster and sort of elevate your mood. And it, you know, breathing faster is also associated with being happy. So, yeah, I mean, obviously this music is having an effect on you, but it's also extending uh, and indirectly toward other people. Yeah. I mean, whether or not they know that you feel sad or feel connected to them or feel happy for them, who knows? But again, this is, uh, so much of this is we're predicated on this sort of behavior and connecting with people. And empathy is certainly a big part of that. See, maybe what the answer here is that each train, uh, each car on the train, uh, needs to have a DJ. To, to like get, get a hold of what the crowd <laughs> is feeling and like work the crowd, manipulate it with, uh, choices in music. Well, we know too from our other research that, that when people listen to music, sometimes their neurons will start firing together and gives them that sense of oneness, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe that's what we need, like group songs on, uh, kind of like you see, I don't know, in the movies anyway, like where buses start singing together. I don't know. I'm just like now I'm thinking about the Walkman with like 20 different like headphones coming from one Walkman. Of course, you don't need that. But I think that was the whole idea, you know, the, the concern back in the day, right, when they decided to have the two um, headphones being so that people could sit there together and, and listen to music and have that experience. Yeah, not just each person grab one corner of it, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So there you go. I don't know. It's some, some food for thought. Yeah, yeah. It's... um. This is, this is definitely a food for thought episode where we're really throwing it out there to you guys because I imagine a, a lot of our listeners probably listen to this, uh, uh, to, to are listening to our voices at the expense of the actual uh, strangers surrounding them or the actual environment surrounding them. So I'm curious to know how that plays into their, uh, 
their uh, encounter with reality. Uh, likewise, just you know, whatever else you're you're plugging into your into your uh, senses or you know, your your music, your your iPads, your your different uh, gadgets. Like, how does that affect your relationship with the real world and the uh, the bubble you've created? We want to know about your portable bubble. I have uh, one really cool. It's not really listener mail because uh, it's uh, it's more related to the blog posts uh, that I do. But uh, I had to share it because it's pretty awesome, uh, and it is from Sandy King, who is the um, the wife of uh, director John Carpenter. Oh, um, I had written uh, an article that was uh, called "Big Trouble in Little China: um, Where's the Universe," which is about cosmological issues that arise in the film "Big Trouble in Little China." Yes, yes. I know, slightly a stretch, but the thing is, uh, John Carpenter always puts a lot of science into, uh, or, or science has popped up in a number of his films in interesting ways, like. Um, you know, there'll be, it'll be a, a movie about uh, satanic zombies like Prince of Darkness, but there's there's also all this uh, there's some stuff having to do with quantum mechanics thrown in there, and it, it really shows you that he was he was really in, geeking out on this stuff too. Right. Um, but anyway, Sandy writes, "Dear Mr. Lamb, had to drop you a line and tell you how great the Big Trouble in Little China cosmology piece uh, you did was. Uh, when you sent that the email to the office to Sean and John's attention, I hit the link to show it to John, and he loved it. He has always been a quantum mechanics cosmology junkie." So you hit near to what's dear to his heart. Thanks for a great time. Best, Sandy. So, uh, oh, nice. Yeah. So that's, uh, I really like that. I'm going to have to get that framed or something. Yeah. So I've been, ge- I've been geeking out all morning on that. Uh, and, uh, and I just, uh, put it onto, uh, Facebook. So if you want to come and see what kind of blog post, uh, I'm writing, what kind of stuff we're into, what we're podcasting about, you can find us there on Facebook as Blow the Mind. And you can also find us on Twitter as Blow the Mind. And by all means, uh, share your experiences with, uh, with the, the Walkman effect. Uh, with us. So we'd love to hear about it. Indeed. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow.